The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Well, welcome to the Rebel Podcast. Uh, we are not in Garage Mahal, and I am not joined by uh, Chris Poots. Instead, I am joined with a man from across the sea. So I'm joined by uh, Dominic Nontenant. For those of you not familiar with his name, he is a, a father of four. His kids range from four to 14. He's a bivocational shepherd at Redwood Reformation Church in New Zealand. So we've had to do some uh, finagling to coordinate time schedules here with the hours between us uh, i'm in his future which is uh, kind of fun actually i'm in your future oh yes that's right that's right yes that's right so non coming to You're us from the future <laughs> but uh dominic non is freelancing as a web designer and a writer he's the author of spine of scripture which is the book that uh, i'd like to talk to him about today he's also the co-author of a book called it's good to be a man which i read after this one and i would also highly recommend to you so uh thanks for joining us on the show non very glad to be here. I just want to start by saying, I, I want to tell you the, uh, kind of a brief story. Our listeners might like this too, of how I came to, to read your book. So it's Christmas of 2021. And I always ask for books for Christmas. That's uh, what I, I am most excited to unwrap from under the tree. <laughs> and I unwrapped the spine of scripture and uh, my wife had gotten it for me. And I kind of looked at it because I'd never heard of the book and I'd never heard your name before. You know, what is this, this junk that well, my wife has chosen? <laughs> well, sinfully, I'm thinking, well, who can choose books better than I can for myself? And it wasn't <laughs> one of the books that was on my list. In my own uh, shame, I'll admit that it, it made its way lower on the pile of uh, to read. I didn't quite get to it in time. And I remember asking her, where'd you find this? And she said, I'm not sure. And I read the back and it sounded interesting, but I, I, I wasn't highly motivated to pick it up. And so uh, it wasn't until about six months later when I got to it in my reading list and I said, ah, let me just see how this was. And, and what you need to know is that I, at the time I was preaching through Genesis 1 to 11. Okay. Right. And Always so, a challenging time. Yeah, for sure. But it was the first time. So when I get to Genesis 6, I had always taken an understanding of that text that uh, the, the sons of God are the godly line of Seth and the mm -hmm. daughters of, of men were the uh, ungodly line of Cain. And I got to the text and as I was wrestling with it, and I already, already started to, to think through some biblical cosmology stuff and just wrestling with the text in order to teach it and preach it. I was challenged by the whole creation story and how that looked and what the biblical cosmology was. Anyway, long story short, I get to Genesis 6, and I realize that the text just doesn't allow for the interpretation that I, I went to it with. And that sort of got me into reading Dr. Michael Heiser and the Unseen Realm and a bunch of stuff like that. And so suddenly, I, I was already sort of having my paradigm shifted, and I was starting to understand the divine counsel for the first time and all this kind of stuff. 
So I picked up your book and quite honestly, I would say that because my, my shift to in, in Canada, there was a, there was a massive split in the evangelical world as there was around the world through COVID. And, and really the, those who I think have a more theonomic perspective on scripture were sort of in one camp. And we, we ended up being kind of the, the group of people who, who stayed open amidst the pandemic and it kind of caused a bit of a schism. And so I was, I was kind of leaning into all that stuff and I have all this stuff in my head, post-millennial goodness, and there's all these dots in my head that I can't quite connect. And so when I finally picked up your book, it was like, it was the book that was in my heart that I wasn't smart enough to write for myself. It connected these dots for me in a way that was just exciting and phenomenal. I immediately went on and bought some, some extra copies for my elders and some of the men that I was mentoring. And it sort of made its rounds in our church. So, so sinfully, I avoided the book thinking that uh, my wife couldn't pick a good enough book for me. So now she's allowed to pick books whenever she wants. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. So that's, uh, that. That actually sounds not all that unlike the kind of journey that I had in writing the book. I mean, obviously I wrote it before COVID came along, but Mm -hmm. I had a very similar experience in terms of putting together all of these pieces and kind of asking myself, why is there no one who has seen the connection between biblical cosmology and the telos of the gospel, post-millennial hope, and put these things together in a coherent, reformed way who isn't some kind of raging heretic or complete nut job. <laughs> well, well, that's it, right? So when you go down this path, you start reading Dr. Michael Heiser, and he just, he just passed away, and mm-hmm. uh, I've been very blessed by his work. Uh, obviously, Indeed. I disagree with him in terms of I'm more reformed in my soteriology. And so, you know, Unseen Realm is gr- I always tell people when I when I recommend the book, it's great, except for his one book where he goes off on Calvinism. Well, and- he has actually got uh, several chapters, which are just really cringe. Yeah. And they're quite close to the beginning. And I wrote a a fairly firm critique of Unseen Realm. Yeah. In order I, to deal I, with some I, was, of that. I was blessed by that as well. But there's also like Doug Van Dorn and there's some of these guys who are yeah. who are talking about this stuff in this space, but it's not people who you fully trust their handling of the text, I guess yeah. is, is how I can say that kindly, because I've been very blessed by a lot of these men's work. So when I picked up your book, it was so refreshing. And I so I, I immediately start Googling your name. Who is this guy? Like, and then I saw that <laughs> this that random the, Kiwi. <laughs> the more recent book that you put out was published by Canon Press, and I've come to trust those guys a little bit. So I'm like, all right, he must not be a complete nut job if uh, if he's got you know Wilson's stamp of approval. And I fell right. upon your website and started reading some things. I'm like, oh, and so I, I've been very blessed by your material. I've been I've been scouring your your website. And and the other thing I'll just say for any of our listeners. Your article, I think it's entitled Why I Can't Worship at Your COVID Compliant Church, is probably the most succinct and level description of what separates the churches who made differing decisions in COVID and why it's such a big deal to our side. It was an important article for me to write because I was in the process of figuring out what to do. We had a second round of lockdowns. And I was worshiping at a church where I had gone to the pastor beforehand and said, you know, given what we now know about COVID, what do you think you'd do if the government said to lock down again? And he said, oh, I think I'd be pretty unlikely to lock down again. And then the lockdowns came and immediately, of course, he locked down. And I was like, oh, so what do I do? Where do I go? And so yeah. that was at the point that I was working on starting up a church of my own to be able to have somewhere to worship with people who had a like mine. And I needed to be able to essentially defend that succinctly to people to help them understand. Well, that was a huge blessing. So thank you. I know, I know we've kind of uh, meandered around, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I believe it or not, these, these are all actually directly related 
to the kind of stuff we're going to be talking about. Absolutely is, because I think if you grasp the central theme of this book, you understand the cosmic significance of what Christ has done and the cosmic claims that he makes as king. So, so let's jump into that a little bit. I want people to read this book. We've really pushed it at our church to a lot of the young men who are, are going through our discipleship. And so I, the big idea I would say of this book is that the kingdom of God is the central theme that sort of connects the entire biblical narrative. And um, the introductory chapter is called The Tale of Two Kingdoms. So I'll just ask you, what are those two kingdoms that you're talking about? And how does the beginning of Genesis sort of set up this theme of kingdom and kingdoms in conflict? Well, to understand that the two kingdoms, you actually kind of need to go back to Genesis one to understand the, the very first kingdom because i think that a lot of people when they look at genesis one they read it and they're like okay it's the creation account and then you've got man made in the image of god and man's like the steward of creation whereas the way that genesis one presents man's commission into the world and i use the term commission advisedly mm -hmm. is very much in terms of dominion which is to say rulership and the idea of Genesis 1 with man being created at the end is that you're seeing how God, as a good king, orders and fills his world, and then he creates a son to carry on his work. Now, that's obviously very pregnant language when you get to the New Testament, especially the Gospel of John, when you look at the way that Jesus talks about sonship. Yep. But the idea of being made in the image of God is explicitly tied to sonship in many places you look just look at genesis 5 and the way that seth is made in the image of adam if seth is made in the image of adam and seth is adam's son and adam is made in the image of god then adam is god's son which is That's exactly right. what luke 3 tells us yeah so the idea of a son is that he carries out his father's work he represents his father into the world so adam is made for this purpose and when god commissions him he says let us make man in our image and if you summarize it it's let him rule 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 that's <laughs> you, right yeah. you tend to easily miss that because it's you know let him have dominion over the birds of the heavens the fish of the sea the cattle and it, it, he lists all the things that man is going to have dominion over but if you were to summarize each of those things as rule it's like rule 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 that's what the image of god is that's right and so god is setting up a kingdom for Adam to rule over. He gives Adam the right to rule this kingdom. Adam is to continue God's work into the world of ordering and filling and essentially taking the pattern of the sanctuary, the garden, and expanding it out into the whole world until you've got this kind of garden city, which is what we see at the end of the Bible. That's right. So the kingdom is right there in Genesis 1, but a lot of people don't really notice that. And then in Genesis 3, of course, Adam grasps for the kingdom before it is his time. Adam is made to be God's son. So he has to learn to be a son. He has to learn obedience. You, you can't be the ruler before you've learned to rule. That's right. So God sets a tree in the middle of the garden. The tree of kingly knowledge is what it is. Yep. And this is, again, something most Christians tend to be at least confused or ambivalent about the tree of knowledge. They see it and they think, well, there was like one bad tree in the garden that God told Adam not to eat from. All the other trees are good, and this tree is bad. Well, that, that's not the way that the knowledge of good and evil is talked about in Scripture, though. When yeah. God comes to Solomon and says, hey, Solomon, you're going to be king. I'll give you a gift. What do you want? Solomon says, I'm not fit to rule his people because I lack wisdom. Give me the knowledge of good and evil. And God is pleased with him because he asks for the very thing that will make him a fit ruler, someone who is able to rule on God's behalf. 
And even the book of Proverbs, you have Solomon as king bestowing kingly wisdom on his sons that they might be fit to rule. Exactly. So the knowledge of good and evil is definitely not something that was meant to be forbidden to to Adam forever. The problem with Adam taking from the tree was not that he was to never have a knowledge of good and evil. Because God says, behold, the man has become like one of us. It is one of myself and the angels he's talking to having the knowledge of good and evil. If if that was something bad to have, God and the angels wouldn't have that. Right. But they do. And now that he has it, lest he reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and live forever, um, they drive him out. But the idea that Adam was to never have the knowledge of good and evil doesn't make any sense in in light of the whole scripture. What we can clearly infer from the account is that what's going on is Adam's thinking, I'm meant to be the king. I'm going to take this knowledge and become king right now. Why should I wait? So he's grasping, and you see this pattern, once you understand that, that this pattern is a grasping for what you are allowed to have in God's timing, but taking it before presumptuously stealing it before it's given to you once you understand that pattern you see it repeatedly in multiple falls throughout genesis yeah so that's what's going on there and as soon as adam does that and concedes that ground to the serpent who tempted him god says okay well you've planted this seed of having you versus the serpent and you've taken the serpent's side and you've you've gone along with this i'm gonna correct it but it's gonna be a long and arduous process this story has to unfold now and you've made the serpent part of this. So now he's going to have this seed who's going to be competing with the seed of the woman. And there's going to be enmity between them at all times. And there's going to be this continual battle, which you see work out in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. Yeah. Cain kills Abel. Cain is obviously the seed of the serpent. He goes and builds a city in his own name. Same mm-hmm. thing happens in Babel. They build a city to their own name. So Satan's always trying to glorify, magnify his own name against God's. And Jesus tells us in John 8 that when you do the works of the devil, that means that the devil is your father because you're representing him. You're continuing to do his work. You're carrying out his work in the world. And, and you I, think I see... feel like I've gotten off that slightly off topic. No, no, that's, the that's, actual... that's great because you, you see it branches right off from there. You went into Cain and Abel and then you see Cain, as you said, goes off and, and builds himself a city. And then yeah. Genesis begins to give us the lineage or the family line that's associated with each each rival kingdom, right? You get yeah. the you get the godly line of Seth and them walking with God, and you get the uh, the various people and their 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 genealogy, and then you get the same thing on on Cain's side, and you see that in in the kingdom in the rival kingdom, sin and death is actually magnified, right? You Lamech right. who comes along and adds to the uh, uh, the sin of Cain, so you see these rival kingdoms set up immediately. That's right. You see that it starts with Cain killing his brother and it ends and, and there's a, a sevenfold judgment pronounced if anyone kills him. And then it goes down to Lamech taking two wives, which is something, of course, you see in wicked kings always taking to themselves Multiple more wives, wives than yeah. they should. And also killing this young man and him presumptuously saying that if Cain is avenged sevenfold, I'll be avenged 77 fold, seven times 70 fold, however he puts it. The idea being that the sin is kind of growing and and coming to it's like what james talks about how sin when it's fully grown gives forth that brings forth death that's right Uh, that's what's going on throughout that line the sin is growing and bringing forth death so this idea of kingdom if you're arguing that it's this is the the spine of scripture that's where the name comes from this is the this is the thread that goes from genesis to revelation and one of the things that i find as i've been trying to work this into teaching and, and and understanding and exposing god's word to people in my own pastoral ministry is that we live in cities 
we have prime ministers and presidents uh, and elected officials, not kings. And so we kind of lose something at the very heart of scripture because of how our, our politics are structured now. So one of the first things that you do is you talk about how a kingdom has sort of three aspects. And this would be, I think, lost um, on us as people who live in democracies now. A kingdom has a king, a territory, and a people. So how does that relate to Adam and how is God's kingdom kind of first established in Eden? And you kind of touched on this a little bit, but maybe tie in this idea of a king, a people, and a territory. Yeah. So the, the territory is the whole world. God gives Adam dominion over the whole of creation. Yep. Adam himself is the king under God. So he's a vicegerent. He's a um, a king under a king. He's the son of a king. He's a prince, essentially. Yep. And the people that Adam is to rule have not yet been created. God gives him one and he's like, yay, woman, this is great. And from that, his commission is to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. So his people have yet to be created. His people had to come from his own body. And if he had not fallen, he would have been, because he was the father of them all, he was the king of them all. Just as you've got the federal headship idea in Adam and you've got the federal headship idea in Christ in Romans 5. Yep. Um, because Christ is our king, we are all his sons and he rules us all and represents us all. And the same would have been true for Adam. Uh, well, the same is true for Adam just by nature, um, but it would have been true if he had not fallen. He would have been like Christ in that regard. Absolutely. So before you go much further into this, this theme of the kingdom that connects all of scripture, you kind of have to set the stage for it. We talked a little bit about Dr. Michael Heiser's work and its impact on both of us, but you call Psalm 82, and I love this phrase, I've stolen it unashamedly, uh, an anchor point. And we've talked about what Dr. Michael Heiser refers to as the Deuteronomy 32 worldview on our podcast. But why don't you take a few minutes just to kind of unfold the biblical cosmology, because it's, it's definitely something that I think many Christians are unfamiliar with. And it's, it's necessary as, as we unfold this theme of kingdom. Well, even in Genesis, you've got this mysterious figure of the serpent, mysterious mm -hmm. to us. People are like, yeah. was it a talking snake? What's going on here? It would not have been, I don't think, from what I've been able to glean, I do not think it would have been mysterious to the original Hebrew audience because the term nachash that's used there, which means serpent, it's like it draws together a nexus of different ideas, which include shining and include divination. It also connects to the word seraph in scripture, which of course is... Uh, in most English Bibles, uh, that's translated seraphim. When yep. you see Isaiah's vision, for example, he sees the seraphim, which just means seraphs. Um, they're some kind of serpentine angels, not unlike the cherubim, the cherubim of uh, Ezekiel's vision, right? Or indeed the cherub that you, the, the cherubs that you see when Adam is driven out of the garden. So you've got like this kind of angelic cohort that's taken for granted in many places. The Bible doesn't actually explicitly talk about them as much as it assumes their presence in many instances. So in multiple places, I think it's three times in the New Testament, it talks about the way that the law was put in place through angels. Mm -hmm. Well, when you read the account in Exodus, you're like, there are no angels there. There's one time where they go up the mountain and they see the God of heaven and they, they have a, a shared meal with him, but there are no angels mentioned. But then you read accounts like the Lord came from Sinai with, you know, 10,000 times 10,000 of his host and fiery ones. And however it puts it, <laughs> I'm yeah. terrible at memorizing scripture. It's my great weakness. <laughs> but I know it's in there. And in the New Testament, it multiple times says the Lord has put in place for angels. So it's actually assuming that God's cohort, his, his heavenly counsel is around him at all times, which is what 
sets the context for the serpent appearing in Genesis 3. The serpent is some kind of council member. He's an angelic being. And Eve isn't surprised to see him and isn't surprised that he's talking because he's in God's sanctuary. Of course, there are going to be angels there. That's where God lives. God's going to have his spiritual host around him. So when you get to Psalm 82, you see that God is standing in the midst of these, what it calls gods, a lowercase g, which are just like archangels, spirits of some kind. And he is judging them because they've been doing a terrible job of ruling the earth. And you're like, well, hang on, wait a minute. There are angels ruling the earth. And yeah, yeah, obviously there are angels ruling the earth. If you go to Daniel, you see there's a a king of Persia and a king of Greece who are over the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. Those are the human kings. That's right. The the king of Persia and the king of Greece are spiritual beings who resist Michael for two weeks while Daniel, or three weeks, is it, while Daniel is praying. And they are they're the kings of those countries because they've been set over those countries in order to rule them and in psalm 82 we see that they have not been doing a great job and god is judging them for failing to uphold the cause of the the widows and the destitute and so the whole foundations of the earth as it were are shaken yep this is something which i don't think most christians just have this on their radar it doesn't compute to them that there are spiritual forces at work behind the political events that go on in nations yeah which is quite strange when you think about it because the new testament is so explicit about it it says yeah. that we don't fight against flesh and blood but against the spiritual powers in the in the heavenly places the the forces of darkness the world rulers yeah and it, it doesn't just say it once it's like multiple times yeah you even have in in galatians 4 this really explicit like you were once slaves to these principalities and powers of the air well now that you're well, known the problem by God. is that galatians tends to translate that as elementary principles right right I think is actually it's it's a reasonable translation. It might be better to just say elements or elementals, but it's a reasonable translation in that Paul is clearly speaking both of the law, the elementary principles of the the Jewish Torah, which were set in place by angels, that's right, and the elemental spirits, as it were, that rule the Gentiles. In order to kind of bring those two ideas together, both Jews and Gentiles were under tutelage of some kind. That's right, and. It's easy to miss that if you're not reading closely and then comparing it with the way that he talks in Colossians in a similar, he uses the same phrase to to speak of much more obviously angels in that case. Yeah. So you have this worldview where there are fallen celestial beings who have rebelled against their creator. And so I, I, I'll just, I'll just assert some things and you can, you can tell me how you might tweak it a little bit, but so you have in Deuteronomy 32, I think it's verses 7 and 8, you get this Moses as he's recalling the history of his people. He remembers that at the time when God divvies up the nations and puts them around the earth, and it says that he fixes their borders. And so any biblical scholar who's, who's studied through Genesis, you might think, okay, well, when, it, when is it that God divvied up the nations of the earth and fixed their borders? Well, he did that after the, the rebellion at the Tower of Babel. And so what Moses is saying is at that time, God spreads out the nations and sort of in, in God's law, the punishment always fits the crime. And so if the Tower of Babel is their rebellion, we don't want God to rule over us, then it's sort of like, okay, then I will give you to the lesser gods. I will give you to the sons of God. And but I think it's Israel really helpful. Is my to, portion. Yeah, exactly. Israel is his portion. It's really helpful when you're, when you're reading Babel to actually go to the parable of the prodigal son. Yes. And they think, well, who's the oldest son here? He's, he's the, the Jews. Who's the youngest son that takes his inheritance and buzzes off to spend it on hookers and blow he's the gentile nations this is essentially a gloss on babel that this event where the son says hey dad i wish you were dead give me your money that's babel 
That's right. So understanding this as the nations essentially rejecting God as their father and God saying, okay, I will give you your inheritance now. Your inheritance is the, the world. So you get a part of the world, but you're not going to like the consequences because now you're going to be under other gods instead of me. So because they have demanded this by their continual rebellion, he essentially disinherits them. They've disinherited themselves and he, he honors that disinheritance and he gives them to the other gods to be ruled over by them. And so they end up in the, the pig swine, the swine pen. Pig's <laughs> pen. Yeah, pen. there you go. <laughs> yeah. So there's a few things that are going on there. And and I guess this is one of the things that I think you you draw it really well in the book is this idea of, of jurisdictional authority, um, mm. this idea of legality, right? We tend not to read the Bible with that framework. But something happened in Eden in terms of Adam surrendering his kingdom to Satan and something happened at, at Babel in terms of jurisdictional and authority being given to, to lesser gods. So talk just a little bit about that. How is it that the, this kingdom that was surrendered at Eden and something else happened at Babel, what, what's going on with this kingdom by the time we, we get to Abraham? I think that it's kind of taken as implicit or you, you need to work it out reading between the lines. What yep. exactly is the relationship between the serpent and Adam, for instance? It's not entirely clear. Obviously, as you say, Adam surrenders his authority to the serpent. And so you definitely never see him acting as a king. You don't see him actually taking authority, exercising dominion. He essentially becomes a kind of passive figure in the background from Genesis, the end of Genesis 3 onwards. You don't really hear anything. Yeah. But you do hear a lot about what the serpent's up to in the line of Cain and especially in Genesis six, um, basically trying to corrupt the the daughters of men so that the seed of the woman can never occur. Yeah, and, it's like genealogical warfare, right? Like it's Yeah, very much so. And when you see that happening, it's like there's this kind of incursion of the spiritual realm into the physical realm. Like the, the boundaries have not been separated properly. And I think we have to say that's because of Adam's sin. Yeah. Adam did not protect the garden the way he was supposed to. He did not keep the garden is the word that God uses, which means to guard. It's like, if you think of a castle keep, that's where the word comes from. He didn't put Satan down when he had the chance. And so now there's this blurring that's going on where Satan and those who follow him, which we learn is about a third of the angels in Revelation, they have the ability to come into the world and there's no resistance to them. Instead, there is a welcoming of them uh, where they you've got wicked men who are like, hey, these guys are powerful. Let's take the power that they're offering to us so that we can exercise lordship over the people that are under us. Uh-huh. And so you get the the Nephilim, the giants, who are kind of just devouring the whole world on account of the power that they've got from the, this unholy union between man and woman. And throughout that whole process, the kingdom of God is essentially relegated to a back seat. You see Cain building a city. There's like all this technology and culture that gets developed. And God's people are just, who knows, that we're not told anything about what they do, except that they keep, they keep dying. <laughs> that he lived X years and he died. He lived X years and he died. So it seems like things are not going very well. Right. And then you get to Babel. <laughs> and what you'd learn at Babel is quite significant because there's a clear distinction that's drawn between before Babel, where, the, where mankind is still one people and after Babel where they're not so before before Babel man is still at least in principle representing God he still has the kingdom of God in that there is still just one kingdom and 
because he continually refuses to exercise that rulership as he's intended to do, God says, okay, that's enough. This is going to keep devolving and degenerating if I allow you guys to continue acting as one people and representing my kingdom. I'm going to divide you up and you're going to get what you want. You're going to be under the sons of God. You're going to have their kingdoms, which ultimately are all kingdoms of Satan because mm-hmm. Satan's in charge of these guys. And I will take Israel as my portion. That will be my kingdom and they will represent me. And they will essentially, as it would be priests to the nations in order to hopefully bring them back one day. Paul says he is not far from each of us, but you guys have been groping around in the dark. He's talking to the, yeah. the Athenians and acts. That's right. Did so, I answer that question in the end? <laughs> yeah, no, you did. Absolutely. I, I, I want to throw you a bit of a curveball because I didn't, <laughs> but I, you, you just said that Satan is sort of over these guys. Mm-hmm. So obviously there's, there's speculation in all of this in, in that the Bible explicitly teaches us many things and the Bible um, assumes certain things. And then the Bible also, right? I, I think it's uh, Deuteronomy 29 where it says, you know, all that God has revealed to us is for us and for our children, but the, there are secret things that belong to him. There are certain things that we see through a mirror darkly. So we don't know the hierarchy of the kingdom of darkness. And quite frankly, we don't need to know. But you just mentioned that, that Satan's sort of over these guys. So you would not see Satan as just another one of the celestials. You would see their, him as some sort of, authority over those that fell and followed him yeah i think that this is something heiser he's kind of seems to be in two minds about it in a way yeah i agree when he reads ezekiel and isaiah and the description of satan's fall there he seems to acknowledge that satan was some kind of big deal he's like an anointed guardian cherub he was you know the, the the most beautiful of them all the most wise of them all but then at the same time in Job, he wants to say, oh, this guy is just like small potatoes. He's just like a court official. Right. Because Hasatan just means the the opposer or the accuser, like like, like the um, the prosecution, essentially. But I don't think you can make those two things fit together. And I don't understand Heiser's reading of Job as this guy might not even be evil. He's, he might not even be the serpent himself. It's like the word Satan here is just being used as a title rather than a name. It's like, okay, but... <laughs> Don't you do biblical theology? Don't you think that it matters that that name is used later to refer to the serpent? And and that when you get to the New Testament, he seems to have a sort of central place among the uh, for sure. Among, I mean, he's called the, the ruler of this world, the that's god right. of this world, in multiple places. Yeah, and, and that's actually key, right? We're we're getting there because um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what's happening then? So we get the story of sort of the unfolding of Israel. And I think that sometimes when we use the term kingdom of God, people read the Old Testament, they say, oh, that you mean Israel, right? Like you mean, you mean the people of Israel. So what's going on? What is the kingdom? Where is the kingdom during the Old Testament as they await the seed of the woman to arrive in the flesh? Well, it's not wrong to think that it's Israel, because as you pointed out, a kingdom has a king, it has a territory and it has people. And God's kingdom in the Old Testament era is the land of Israel. It's not that he only has authority over the land of Israel, but rather that his kingdom is manifested in the land of Israel. Israel is what's supposed to represent him. Israel, he says, is my son, my firstborn son. That's right. So the idea is that Israel is supposed to be the place, it's the new Eden. You work through the way that Israel comes into the promised land and it's all Edenic language. It's all the new Eden is being built slowly over time. You get this this movement from the world to the land to finally having another sanctuary in the land so you've got like the garden of eden as the land of israel and then the sanctuary right in the middle of it or you could say the garden of eden is uh, the sanctuary and then eden itself the land of eden is the land of israel right. depending how you want to look at it 
the whole way through the Old Testament, God is continually saying, you guys need to be representing me. You guys aren't representing me. I'm going to sell you into the hands of the nations. So you call out for me for help and realize what you've done wrong. And I'll put you back in the land. You can try again. And of course, you get to the point where the curses of Deuteronomy just have to be applied because they refuse to represent him. And they're always going after other gods, just like happened at Babel. They're proving essentially that the people of Israel are not spiritually different from anyone else. They're naturally just like everyone else and incapable of representing God, even though they're supposed to be, even though they covenantally agreed to. And by the time of the exile, it looks like the kingdom of God has just essentially been lost. It looks like Satan has come in. He carts off the northern part of Israel, and then he comes in, he carts off the southern part of Israel. They go out into the nations. They're subjugated by, as we learn in Daniel, you know, the kings of Persia, kings of Greece, and so on. These guys are obviously no friends to Israel. And you're thinking, did the kingdom of God fail? And then you get to the time in the New Testament, we know that the the exile returned. There, there was a return. Many Jews were still out in the nations, dispersed in the nations. So it's not like Israel has been fully restored in any way. And you see the way that in Israel, when the temple is rebuilt, those who remember the old temple weep because it's yeah. such less glory. This is not an improvement. This is pathetic compared to what we had before. <laughs> By the time of the New Testament, of course, you see something new that you never see in the Old Testament, which is demonic possession. And you yes. think, well, what's going on with these demons? Why are there so many demons everywhere? Why is everyone being afflicted and possessed by demons? Well, it's not actually that hard to figure out. Demons are like Satan's foot soldiers. What it's showing is that the land of Israel, because it's no longer a free state, as it were, it's under the, the thumb of Caesar, is essentially occupied by enemy forces. So you've got this kingdom of, of God, which is really not a kingdom at all. It's a vassal state to Satan. And it's occupied by all of his evil minions who are busy making life difficult for all the people who are supposed to represent him. And so when Jesus actually arrives, uh, it's interesting, I'm preaching through Mark now, hmm. and you see him come and, and uh, the, the very beginning of his ministry, much of it is spent in the synagogue surrounding Capernaum, hmm. cleansing the synagogues of evil spirits, right? Because right. That's, that's where they're living. Now you get, and you have this beautiful phrase in the New Testament, you know, at the fullness of time, God sends forth his son, born of a woman. And so Yahweh sends his anointed one into the world. This is God through his righteous son, now beginning to take Adam's kingdom back from Satan. So talk a little bit about what happens at the arrival of, of Christ and, and through his earthly ministry. Well, he goes through Israel, announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand, and Everything that is associated with that in terms of signs and wonders in all the Gospels except for John, where there's a much more symbolic aspect to the the signs that Jesus does. But everything that he does is related to casting out demons and healing the sick. So it's removing the forces who've occupied Israel, essentially returning the nation of Israel to an independent state, having its own authority again. It's no longer under the control, under the thumb of Satan. And healing is obviously a, a kind of incursion of the resurrection. Right. So it's it's not full resurrection. You're not going to live forever, but you have been healed. James tells us explicitly, you know, sin is related to sickness. Sickness is caused by sin. Yep. It's not that every single time you get sick, it's because you've done some specific sin. But, but it's a result sin, of sin in, in uh, infesting the world. Right. Sin, sin brings forth death, and sickness is a precursor to death. Right. So when you reverse the sickness... It's showing that you're, you're bringing life again. And so Jesus goes through the land of Israel and he heals the sick and he casts out demons and so do his disciples. 
this is a pattern which continues after the resurrection and it continues out not just in the land of israel but out into all of the gentile nations and whenever the gospel goes forth even today i have it on good authority that healing is a very natural part of it and so is exorcism in fact in china when the gospel went to china the churches by that time had essentially given up on the idea that demonic possession was still a thing and they didn't know what to do with all the demons there until i think it was was it hudson taylor or was it someone else he wrote a book about it basically yeah. saying hey you guys this thing that we keep seeing it looks just like the demonic possession in the new testament maybe we should try doing what they did it's amazing how often we read these stories and we want to relegate them to the specific mission of Jesus. And, and we forget that as the disciples pushed forward, right, as they were faithful and God's, uh, you know, what quite frankly, persecution pushes them out of Jerusalem to be faithful to God's call to go to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. They encounter the exact same things. It's quite interesting. So I'm thinking now of John, uh, I think it's 12, and Jesus is talking about seeing Satan cast down. And he says right after that, you know, when I am lifted up, when the Son of Man is lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. So, so what happened, because then you can jump forward to Colossians, and as the Apostle Paul is understanding what took place on the cross, he says there's something happening that put all the principalities in power to open shame. So what is it yeah. that happened on the cross jurisdictionally, uh, in terms of legal transfer of power, what happens on the cross? Well, on the cross, Jesus suffers the penalty of sin, um, the penalty of the law, which is death. It says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And because he hasn't actually done anything to deserve death, he isn't actually under the curse of the law. As C.S. Lewis puts it, death goes backwards. That's right. He tricks Satan. Satan's like, I'm just going to kill this guy, <laughs> and that'll solve the problem. But killing the guy is the exact thing that needs to happen in order for anyone who's represented by him to now be free from the curse of the law. Because Jesus has suffered that curse himself without actually deserving it, God overturns the death penalty by raising him from the dead. And then he doesn't just raise him from the dead. He raises him up above all of the heavenly host and seats him at his right hand and gives him all dominion and power because he has proven that he is a human being worthy of rulership because he has submitted to the point of death where Adam would not. And so God says, you are now my chosen king. You get to rule the world the way Adam should have. And anyone who is united to you, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, is also raised up into the heavenly places and seated with him. That's right. Which means that we are now covenantally, legally above the angels. And Satan didn't apparently see that coming. In fact, Paul, <laughs> Paul tells us explicitly, if they had known what would happen, the rulers of this world would never have crucified the Lord of glory. <laughs> That's right. You quoted C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes from uh, the entire Chronicles of Narnia series. But uh, when, I love when, when Aslan is explaining what happens. And he says, if the White Witch had known that there was mm. a deeper magic, right? If, yep. I think he says something along the lines of, like, if, if she had have been there when the foundation of the world was being laid, she would have known that there was a deeper magic. And that if a righteous one was killed in a traitor's stead, that death itself would begin to work backwards. And you just see that, like, he just so perfectly encapsulated sort of what, what took place there. And this kind of gets us to the, the crux of, 
for any of our listeners, I'm just getting excited here because I love this stuff. And when you said, you know, he actually, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, which means we are seated above angels. And there's these weird passages that like before these dots were connected for me, when Paul comes along and says, you know, don't you know that you're going to rule over angels? Like it just doesn't yeah. make sense. You're kind of like, well, what, what's what are you guys going to Gentile sinners who are under Satan still for judgment? when you're going to be judging the guys who are over them. What That's are you right. doing? It doesn't make sense until you kind of understand this. And this is why I've been so blessed by your book and why I recommend it, because it kind of gets to, even as I'm asking you what happened on the cross, as, as evangelical Christians, we've accepted a truncated gospel that sees you know Christ's atoning work on the cross as, as sort of a, a personal, individual redemption and ticket to heaven instead of the cosmic gospel that it is, right? That there's this, 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 something jurisdictionally is happening here that affects the entirety of the cosmos. And so now Christ is that one who's seated above everything. All dominion is given to him. And now he rightfully rules the cosmos. And there's this great line in the book that I, I just want to get out there. And then I want you to unpack it a little bit. But you say that one of the plights of the North American evangelical movement is that we, we preach atonement. This bites a lot of us reformed guys, right? You know, we preach atonement at the expense of enthronement. And I just thought that was so cheeky. So unpack that a little bit for me. Well, when I first became a Christian, I had this problem when I was reading the Bible, I was like, I've been told the gospel. I know I'm saved by the fact that Jesus died for my sins and that I'm hidden in him, but I don't actually see that gospel being preached mm. anywhere in the Bible. Why is it that the gospel that I was preached isn't preached by the apostles and doesn't even seem compatible with the way that the Old Testament talks about salvation? Mm. And it wasn't until I was working through all this stuff that it finally kind of clicked for me and I realized what was going on, which is that the reformed world and the evangelical world in general, I think it really has its headwaters in the reformation, at least in terms of the Western world. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the gospel has been lost in a different way in the Eastern world. But in terms of Western Protestantism, there was so much focus on, especially Galatians, I think, and works righteousness and, and kind of interpreting Galatians as if the Judaizers were Roman Catholics which they weren't, right? <laughs> there was so much emphasis on that, that all of the focus in the gospel went on to the atonement and how Jesus died for sin and figuring out the, the mechanisms involved there, which are important, obviously, because that's how we are freed from the penalty of sin. But at the expense of asking, what did Paul mean by saying he was raised for our justification? Mm. If you were to ask the average Christian how are we justified? They'd say by Jesus' death. But right. Paul doesn't say that. Paul actually yeah. says we're justified by Jesus' resurrection. And I don't think that most evangelical Christians have any categories for even understanding that, for, for being able to explain that, let alone preach it to people as the gospel. And when you look at the way that the gospel is preached by the apostles, they always front load their presentation, whether it's accommodated to Jews in Acts 2 or to Gentiles in Acts 17, it's always, there is this guy, Jesus, who's going to judge the world, not just you, but the whole world. And God has proven this by raising him from the dead to show that he is righteous. He is not worthy of death like you guys are and has raised him into the heavenly places and made him king. He is the one who's going to judge because he is the king. Mm. And then it's, 
What do people say in response to that? That's the question that determines how the gospel then goes. What we think of the gospel is then presented. It, the, what we think of as the gospel is really the benefit of having accepted the presentation already given, right? which is about Jesus's kingship and saying, well, because you have bowed the knee to Jesus, you will be identified with him. He will forgive your sins. And it doesn't explain how. It's not like knowing that it, he he died for your sins and that there's an imputation going on and so on. That isn't mentioned. That's not that important to the key principles involved, which are to do with loyalty and obedience and submission and the fact that you can be identified with your king. Your king stands in for you and he does not reject you because you are coming to him in faith. So I think in a way we've actually, we've kind of, I don't want to say we've eliminated faith because obviously there's this massive emphasis on salvation by faith at the expense of works to the point that people are terrified of saying anything about works being involved with salvation and will treat you like a heretic if you think that works are involved in salvation. But we've changed the very definition of faith from something that involves an active, loyal trust in Jesus and a submission and obedience to him to something that's just like a knowledge of what he's done. Just knowing what he's done and believing that it's true doesn't actually save you that in fact that james specifically says the demons do have that yeah but they're terrified yeah it's almost gnostic uh, how how it's sort definitely of, tied up with gnosticism it's a, a rejection of the bodily involvement in faith yeah that's right and 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 i mean i just think through like i'm a visual right so you get this picture in your head of the sort of Western evangelical Protestant gospel is Jesus is knocking at your at the door of your heart, right? Just, right. just waiting for you to have the faith to let him in. And he's going to come yep. in and revamp all the rooms in your house. We've both heard he these just, He just really right? wants to serve you. Yeah. And which, which is the opposite of what the apostles say, which is that you really need to serve him. Yeah. And the way Paul presents it in, in Acts 17, as you're saying, is, you know, God, God's looked over these former times of ignorance, but but you know, now he's raised Christ. And now is the time when he's calling everyone everywhere to repent. The picture that gets substituted for instead of this, this kind of weak willed Jesus, who's knocking at the door of your heart, just hoping that you let him in out of the rain, you get this picture of this conquering king who's coming into hostile territory, and telling you to lay down your arms, stop fighting him, and if you will surrender and switch sides, there's actually a, a, not only a, a place for you on his side, but you'll actually have an inheritance in his kingdom. And, and that's like that's right. He'll, he will adopt you as his sons. Such a, a powerful picture, and I think it it glorifies Christ in the way that the New Testament does, in the way that that um, that sort of Billy Graham crusade style, just make a decision and say the sinner's prayer. I remember as a kid, I grew up in a, in a very charismatic, um, that's sort of my upbringing with a very hyper charismatic and I wasn't saved in the church. I wasn't saved until many years later, but I, I grew up and I was kind of looking in it because I didn't know what faith meant. Was it the goosebumps I was supposed to be feeling during worship? Was it the, like, what, what was that? Because there wasn't an action associated with it. But when you look at even the word faith in the New Testament, and you've been helpful for me in this, it's a word that was used in the Roman propaganda machine in terms of pledging allegiance to, to the empire, to the emperor, right. to, to Rome. And the, the word gospel in the, the time of the New Testament was a very similar kind of thing. It was specifically political in that it referred to the, the supposedly glad tidings of, of, it was essentially a message of triumph that... Yeah. This king had come in and he had established order and he had um, taken your land for its own good. 
<laughs> and now you submit it to him and he would make all things right. And, yeah. you know, in the case of Caesar, yeah, I mean, they, the Pax Romana was a thing. Yeah. Um, you know, they did establish order and peace in a way. But when it comes to Jesus, that really is good news. Yes, that's right. Jesus's rule is the best news that you can get, especially in the present day. There's so much existential angst from people after the whole COVID crisis. And like COVID was just the perfect time for the church to step up and start preaching oh, the enthronement of Christ. That's say, right. You guys need to stop being anxious. Jesus is in charge. He will order the world for the good of those who love him. And he is doing it right now. He is reigning from heaven. The government is not in charge of this virus. The government does not get to tell you when to shut down worship. Jesus is in charge of both those things. Yeah. And instead, because we've got this gospel, which just says, oh, it's all just about personal salvation and you must be good to other people. And you don't want people to think badly of you because then you might not be saved. All the churches decided to capitulate and you had to well, be nice. Because you can have your own personal private relationship with God and your own personal quiet time and your own personal pious acts on Zoom. Right. You can, and you can right. do that on in the privacy exactly. of your own living room. Right? When you relegate the gospel to a personal salvation That's only, right. then why do you need to gather for worship? If you're just personally saved, what difference does it even make? Right. As opposed to seeing worship as something which is central to the whole foundation of the world. Worship is like the, the pinnacle of creation. And from there, everything flows down. All the patterns of the heaven itself flow down so that God's will be done on earth as in heaven. That's right. Which is what the, the Bible actually teaches. It's amazing that, uh, you know, we had in Canada, I was I worked with uh, Dr. Joe Boot and, and Aaron Rock on uh, the Niagara Declaration with Jacob Raom and, and, and a few people here in Canada. I know there's the Frankfurt Declaration. So various different uh, countries had these, these various things. But it was amazing to me that the idea that Caesar is Lord, right? When, when you come to the New Testament and, and you hear the, the phrase, Jesus is Lord, you forget that there was this political poking at an idol going on as they were using that phrase, right? Because Caesar is Lord was the, the propaganda that was what you had to say. And so when you get to a gospel that sees Christ as the enthroned Lord of creation, and I just don't think that if you've embraced the, the truncated version of the gospel, you have no foundation upon which you can tell the rulers of the earth to kiss the sun, lest his, his wrath be kindled against them. Right. You kind of forget that Revelation calls Jesus the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's right. Well, that, that sounds a little bit dangerous. I don't want my my government to be angry at me for thinking that there's someone over them or that I have a right to tell them what they should be doing on behalf of Christ. Yeah. But that's exactly what the church is supposed to do. The church has replaced the wicked angels in the divine council. That's what that's we right. see in Revelation. There are 24 elders around the throne now casting their crowns before God in worship. But we know what those guys do when they're not prostrating themselves we see examples of the angels doing this in the Old Testament. You know, Micaiah talked about his vision of all the spirits discussing how shall we defeat Ahab. One's got one idea, one's got another idea, and then a spirit comes and says, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he says, go out and do this, you shall succeed. This is the way that the divine council works is that they, they come together and they discuss an issue. And God doesn't just decide what to do. He loves to interact with his people. He relates to his people as a person. And he says, what do you guys think we should do? And you see the same thing happening with Abraham, the same thing happening with Moses. God's like, I'm going to destroy this people. Moses is like, no, 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 no. Hang on a second. And God listens to him. God doesn't say, what do you know, Moses? You're just a man. 
God loves to relate to his people as if they were his advisors. Like that's why he raises them up to have wisdom. Mm. Same with Abraham. He's walking with Abraham. He says, shall I conceal from Abraham what I'm about to do? And he's like, you know, I, I, show, I won't. I'll, I'll tell him what I'm going to do. And then Abraham's like, oh man, he's going to destroy Sodom and lots in Sodom. I, I need to figure out a way to talk him down. And he goes through this process of bargaining with God and God listens and changes his plan. Or he says he will change his plan if he can find the conditions that Abraham has set up, which he can't. Right. But the idea is that these guys are advisors to God. We have access to God through Christ, not just to come before him as slaves, but to come before him as friends and as sons. And the way that the Bible talks about friends in the Old Testament, like if you're the friend of the king, that means you have the king's ear. Mm. It doesn't mean that you're just on good terms. With, I think that we've Facebook especially has been responsible for diluting the term <laughs> friend to essentially meaningless. Yeah. Uh, but in the Old Testament, the term friend is very pregnant with meaning. We are friends of God. Jesus says that I no longer call you, how does he put it? Call you servants, maybe? Servants, but yeah. Friends. And that's very significant language. Like if you look yeah. at what that means, whereas he was before just teaching them and they basically knew nothing, he's now readied them to the point where they are able to interact with him as if he were an equal. It's not that they really are equals, right? but it's that he condescends to treat them as having wisdom to make decisions that he can then, through his sovereignty, decide on this is the way that we're going to go, and you guys go out and do it. That's, that's, whole, that's, that's incredible. Counsel. That's the whole point of the church. Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing how much this framework helps you understand tough biblical passages, right? So you have those who might disagree with my soteriological position, and they might point to something like Moses talking to God about, you know, God changing his mind and, and uh, you know, the will of God is not absolute and, and this sort of stuff. But when you have this perspective and you understand how God brings us in in this way, it actually makes sense of these passages and why they're there. They're not there to teach us that God's will is not sovereign, but it's there to teach us what our destiny is in Christ. Right. Yeah, that's amazing. I know we've already kind of got here, but I, I kind of wanted to finish off our interview by just saying like, okay, so, so what's the part of the story that we're in? And I'll tell you, one of the reasons that we actually named our podcast when we first started off, uh, and I wish Chris was here to be able to, uh, to meet you. He, he loved your book as well, but we called it the Rebel Podcast for a couple of reasons. Number one, we were part of the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination, and just because of our theology, we tend to be kind of black sheeps in the alliance. So we call ourselves the Rebels, knowing the Rebel Alliance in Star right. Wars okay, um, are the, the good guys, right? If you think about Star Wars and you think about the story of the original trilogy, it's the knockout punch of the Empire, right? The, the Death Star gets destroyed. The Emperor is killed, right? The strongman is bound up, so to speak. But when the Death Star is destroyed and the, the original trilogy comes to an end, I just pretend that nothing else came after the original trilogy. So, yeah. And so you'll just – what would then have happened is you realize if you're a Star Wars fan, well, much of the galaxy is still under Imperial control. So it would have been decades and decades now for the people, right, to go into those systems still under the control of the empire and liberate them. The empire has been destroyed, right? The emperor has been killed. The head of the snake has been crushed. Mm. But now is the part of the story where that we're going into enemy territory. That's the part of the story that I think we're in in this cosmic gospel. How does that relate to the Great Commission and how would you phrase it? Yeah, well, that's exactly right. At the end of Psalm 82, it says, rise up, O God, for you shall inherit the nations, which is the point of the story that we're now in. Christ is re-inheriting the nations. And as Paul says, summing up all things in himself, 
And that's a very slow process because he doesn't do it through the kind of way that Satan and the Jews expected him to with just military conquest. Mm. His conquest is actually much more powerful than mere physical weapons. We don't have carnal weapons, fleshly weapons, but we have spiritual weapons. We have the sword of the spirit and we have the, the Holy Spirit himself going with us and changing hearts. So the territory of God's kingdom now becomes human hearts. Mm. So whereas before it was bound to a specific place, a specific land of Israel, now it's wherever Christians are, God's kingdom goes with them. And, you know, I've got a little quarter acre. That's not much to speak of, but that quarter acre is part of God's kingdom. And the more people repent and turn to Christ and are added to his body, the greater his influence on the earth becomes and his instrument of action on the earth, the church, um, expands. And all of the members of that body are therefore able to exert their dominion, to exercise dominion on his behalf in the little parts of the world that he has given to them. And so where we are at the moment is, well, Jesus defeated the the rulers in the sense that he broke their legal claim. Satan has been thrown out of heaven. He no longer gets to stand before the throne of God accusing us. We know that. But that doesn't mean that he personally went out and bound every single one of them and threw them into the abyss. That's not what's happened. We know that they're still out there. They're still powerful. And not only that, but they're also extremely angry. They're like Cain, who was enraged because Abel had his sacrifice received and Mm. showed him up. They're ashamed. They are humiliated. God says that he put them to open shame. How do humiliated, wicked people act? They don't tend to act very pleasantly. They try to destroy the thing that humiliated them. And so we're in warfare with these spiritual principalities, these powers. But the thing is that they may have lots of spiritual power, but they don't have any kind of legal claim because we have the new covenant. The the whole world has been legally by God given to Jesus. And because we are covenantally united to Jesus, we have the legal claim, which means wherever we go, we can appeal to the power, the authority of Christ and the Holy Spirit will act through that to disarm these rulers, to push them out and to take that land for himself. Because the Holy Spirit, as John says, he who is in us is stronger than he who is in the world. Mm. No one can resist the Holy Spirit. doesn't matter if you're Satan. Satan is far stronger than a human being, but he's, he's not doing anything compared to the Holy Spirit. That's you right. don't want to mess with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Satan's terrified of the Holy Spirit. Everyone is. And so we're going out, and Jesus says, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against you. People read that like it's Hades attacking us, and <laughs> our gates are going to hold firm. Right. That's not what he says. Yeah. He says, we're attacking Hades. We're going to the underworld. And we are besieging it, and we're destroying its gates. We're breaking it down, and we're walking in. We're marching in as an army, and we are rescuing prisoners. Yeah. And that will succeed. Amen. And this is where I think that the right place for works in salvation is applied, right? So you talk about the the territory of of the kingdom now is the, the, the every human heart, but it manifests in the world through the spirit-empowered living of those with new hearts. And yeah. so, as you said, your property is now, and I, I think of this like, um, I don't know if you've read uh, C.R. Wiley's uh, In the House of Tom Bombadil, but you have this idea that- Not yet. Oh, I it's, intend it, to. it's wonderful, brother. You should read it. But there's this, this idea that taking dominion, right? If we are to take dominion and we rule the territory that God has given to us in a godly way as his vice regents, right, as, as, as his mm-hmm. princes, 
then we establish Christ's rule, right? God's rule. And, and that's really what the, the creation mandate was all, was all about. Go and bring order to the chaos. And so now here we are called to go out into the chaos and bring order there. Well, what do we have to bring order? We are indwelt by the spirit of God and we're given the law of God. And so we take those two things and we apply them to the world around us. And that's why I, I just think that too much of the gospel has been, okay, yes, I get it. The territory is my human heart. And so now I, I, I got my, you know, my, my job is just to rescue as many people off the sinking Titanic as I possibly can. It's like, no, no, God, God's in the business of getting the Titanic to, to float again, right? He's, that's right? he's in the resurrection business. So right, so get, exactly. Get he is in the resurrection business. The Titanic is not going to sink. That's right. So anyway, I, I just think that when you put all these pieces together, it creates such a, a wonderful story that we get swept up into. And this is this, this beautiful thing is that God actually includes us. The strong man's been bound up and sort of the, the doors and windows to his house are left open and we get to go in and plunder. And, and that's, that's sort right. of the, the part of the picture that we're at. Which is a difficult picture for some people to accept because they look at the state of the world right now and they think, yes. what are you guys smoking? Clearly everything's <laughs> getting worse. Clearly Satan is still in charge. And well, I mean, that's not incompatible with what we're saying at all. Right. In any war, there's always a back and forth. And there are times when the enemy seems to be very strong and you seem to be very weak. But if you look at the whole history of the world, the fact that Christians have never been more ascendant, they've never been more Christians in the world, there's never been less war, there's never been less poverty, fewer people are hungry today than ever before. Like, these are all things that have been products of the gospel, like, undeniably would never yeah. have happened without the gospel. Yeah. And even things like communism, you look at statism, oh man, statism is so terrible, socialism is a terrible evil people coming in and saying you have to give 30 percent of your income or 50 percent of your income in order to support these people who won't work and the new testament says that he who does not work not eat and so on and that's all true socialism is a terrible evil and it has led to the the kind of statist overreach that we're now seeing with covid and everything else but even these ideas are parasitic on christianity you would that's never right. have yeah. seen statism in the form that it now takes before christianity yeah. Because the pagans would have just said, hey, we're gods, we're going to do what we want, and you guys just have to suck it up and deal with it. <laughs> they wouldn't redistribute the wealth. All right. That idea came from, hey, you should have concern for victims. Where does that come from? It comes yeah. from the New Testament, or the Old Testament for that matter. But even the forms of evil that we're seeing now are parasitic on the gospel, which yeah. just goes to show that they're not going to last because parasites are going to be swept away. They're going to be cut off. They're going to be like little ticks, ticks on the body of Christ. And that's actually a really good maybe place for us to end. I'm often reminded of uh, Isaiah 9, right? That uh, his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the government will be on his shoulders. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And it says, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I think sometimes when you catch this cosmic gospel and all the post-millennial glory that comes along with it, um, we want our zeal <laughs> to do it, right? But right. it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will do it. Well, that's, so that's a very common objection that Christians have. Oh, you, you know, you guys are transformationalists. You guys are trying to change culture to make it, the, to make it a Christian nation. And you can't do that through political power. Well, yeah. we never said we were going to do it through political power. That's what right. we said is the Holy Spirit will do it. That's and then right. Holy Spirit-filled people will elect political leaders who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And those people, because they love God's law, will make laws that establish Christendom on the earth. 
when I get accused and say, well, you're just trying to Christianize Canada, mm. I often say, well, well, I'm not trying to paganize it. So yeah. like, what, what else would I what want to do, do with it? What do you want, Canada? <laughs> yeah. Do you not love your nation? Yeah. I love my neighbors enough that I want godly people to rule over them, not yeah. ungodly people. <laughs> It's such a wonderful and refreshing time talking with you. And I want to also recommend your book, It's Good to Be a Man. I didn't come to it until after. Once I knew your name, I started looking for it. And so I found It's Good to right. Be a Man, which you co-authored with uh, uh, Michael Foster. But it's also wonderful. And you're pretty active over there. So it's good to be a man.com. Um, there's blog posts. There's all kinds of wonderful stuff. I bring that into the conversation now, not because I'm uh, wrapping up, though I am, but I say that because I think reclaiming masculinity and understanding what it means to be a king who is called to rule is actually a massive piece of why the gospel got truncated and lost in the first place. And so I love the work that you're doing over there. Did you want to say anything about that book or that work or how it ties into this? I wouldn't have written that book if I hadn't written the spider scripture first. Yeah. Know, that was what got me thinking about, you know, what is it? What is dominion? What am I supposed to be doing as a Christian? Why is it that I've been so passive? And why is it that it seems like that's quite at odds with the gospel? The gospel seems to think that I should have a working faith. And what do I do? What, what does a working faith look like? And especially what does a working faith look like if you're, you're a man? Yeah. So I met Michael. Michael, it's funny, actually, Michael came to know of me through my posts on Genesis 6, which he completely disagrees with. He takes the line of Seth view. (laughs) Okay. And I should say that he actually has a really good paper called Apostasy by Marriage. Mm. And that's essentially a biblical theological defense of the line of Seth view in Genesis 6. And he makes a pretty good case. I think that one of the things that I'm looking at doing in the new version of the book that I want to publish is there are a lot of things I want to add and things I want to fill out because... Originally, the book was just, I literally just took a series of blog posts yeah. and tweaked it slightly and, and published it as a book. So obviously, it's it's very pared down, and there's a lot that could be added. And I've learned a great deal since I published it. One of the things that I think is not emphasized enough in the book, but which is actually kind of presupposed by it, is this idea of on earth as in heaven. Mm. And the idea that the physical images, the spiritual, the, the material world images heavenly patterns, reflects heavenly patterns. And... You see this in places like Job. There's this this debate, are the sons of God and Job, you know, um, just righteous human beings or are they angels? And if you actually take seriously the idea that the physical images, the spiritual, you have to take seriously the idea that it's intentionally meant to be ambiguous and that it could be both. Hmm. And when you see that the whole context of the, the sons of God coming in is directly after this liturgical thing going on where job is offering sacrifices on behalf of his sons yep you have to assume that there's a connection there yeah and when you look at the way that worship works in the new testament hebrews talks about how we've come to a a, the heavenly jerusalem and so on it explicitly says we have come to the spirits the just made perfect to angels in festal array and so on this is what is happening in worship that's right There's no conflict between the idea of the sons of God being men and the sons of God being angels when it comes to the merging of heaven and earth in worship itself, because they're both there. So I think that a lot of the debates that take place in places like Genesis 6 and places like Job, I would say that the primary referent is definitely the sons of God in heaven, because that's actually the whole trajectory of scripture is that you get this slow switch from the primary referent being the sons of God in heaven to the primary referent in the New Testament being the sons of God on earth. Uh, We're now called sons of God. And yeah, bringing many way. sons that's, to glory, right? Exactly. That's, a, that's actually a really important trajectory because it's all about how the wicked divine council is replaced by the church. Right. But the fact is that 
even in places like Genesis 6 and in places like Job, you don't have a clear distinction, a, a clear division or contradiction between the idea of sons of God being men and sons of God being angels. I think that the best interpretation would say that they're both. Mm. That's really interesting. I, I, it'll be a revised version, I, I take it? Yeah, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. It, it was going to be published through Canon, and now Canon are like, oh, actually, we're not sure about this. Not because they don't believe the content's good. I think they're, they're just taking a different... They have so much going on at the moment in terms of books they're publishing, and they're having to kind of decide what's the central theme that's going to tie together everything that we're going to publish because we can't publish everything we want to. We just mm. don't have the capacity. Yep. So I'm not sure if it'll be published through Canon in the end or not. If it's published through Canon, it'll probably have a different title. It'll probably be called something like Thy Kingdom Came. But if I had my druthers, I'd keep it the spine of scripture just because I think it's a good title. <laughs> and maybe I'll publish through New Christendom Press. Maybe I'll publish, just self-publish again. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, uh, the, the New Christendom Press, uh, the uh, the King's Hall podcast is uh, uh, got put on my radar recently and I, I devoured right. the first season. So, I, you know what? I'm, I'm really excited, brother, because, you know, I go from a book of an author that I didn't know and was reluctant to even read because I didn't trust my wife. Um, and, uh, and it was, it was such a blessing and, uh, you know, I, I had uh, no idea the name Brian Sauvey and, and I've been blessed by the, the stuff coming out of there. I'm really encouraged that this enthronement gospel, Christ seated in the heavenly is ruling over the entirety of the earth is once again, getting the recognition it deserves. And I think it's men like you have a voice to spread it. So thank you for your faithfulness. Thanks for all the work that you've done. And I would just encourage our listeners to go on non.com. That's B-N-O-N-N.com is where uh, you blog. I know in our exchanges, you said some of that stuff's pretty out of date. You haven't been uh, keeping up there quite as much, but there's there's yeah. wonderful resources there that I would encourage people to go and take a look at. And we look forward to that uh, the next iteration of this wonderful work. And also, uh, if you go to discipleshipanddominion.substack.com or just do a Google search for, for Discipleship and Dominion, that's where Michael and I publish a lot of content. So we've got a weekly newsletter and it's very much practical theology. How do you work out your faith, essentially? Awesome. What kinds of th things like you know, marriage, um, tips for getting on better with your wife, for understanding women better, for taking dominion, for uh, avoiding manipulators, you know, this whole culture of niceness, how to deal yep. with that, all kinds of stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, brother. Thanks for being generous with it. I've kept you from your family long enough, but thank you so much for your time. And uh, I, I know our listeners will be blessed by this. So thanks for being with us. Thank you.